So Cameron, my definition of success very quickly became success is not who you are in relation to the people sitting next to you. Success is who you are in relation to where you're willing to stand, looking at the isms and schisms that are preventing you and hoping by sheer centripetal force you're sucked in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Happy New Year again, and welcome to A Navigation and Discovery with Cameron Singh, where we unpack people's stories in hopes that you'll learn from the life lessons through their journeys of life, of navigating and discovering through their journey. Um, On today's episode, we have Krish Dunham. Krish, I've heard him speak at Life Surge and also a real estate event uh, out here in Denver, Colorado. And Krish has made such an impact in my life. And this conversation was such an encouragement to me. And I'm so excited to share this with you. I feel like this this podcast episode is going to be an awesome encouragement for you that are listening as we start off the year 2024. Um, if you haven't heard of who Krish is, Krish Dunham was mentored by Zig Ziglar, and he actually worked for Zig Ziglar for several years. And then he went on to a path of speaking around the world, speaking in front of thousands, hundreds and thousands of people. He's encountered so many politicians, famous people, other other individuals uh, that are noteworthy. And his the way he speaks, uh, he's just made such an impact on my life. Um, you can also look up some of his YouTube videos where he has other talks, uh, and you are going to enjoy this episode. If you haven't gotten a chance to um, watch my episode or listen to my episode, uh, as I give a year of review for 2023 and provide some insights and and, uh, some perspectives on my outlook for 2024, you can go and uh, listen to that episode. So let's go into this episode with Krish Dunham, and I hope that this episode is an encouragement as we transition into 2024. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for being on the podcast today. I've been really looking forward to to this this time. Well, I appreciate you having me on, Cameron. Appreciate it, and uh, look forward to our journey together. Yes, definitely. Um, I remember when I went to one of Pip's past to property event uh, over here in Denver, and um, you did the keynote, and I was just astounded by the keynote. I uh, took a lot of notes and was highly encouraged um, from your talk. It gave me a lot to reflect on and um, followed, you know, went to purchase your book, Twilight. And uh, really, you know, I never have heard of you before that event. And I'm like, I need to meet you. And we met briefly after the event, but I'm like, I need to have a more in-depth discussion and um, take a deep dive into your journey because it, it's so it's so unique and um, you got to learn from um, Zig Ziglar. And I just wanted to help share your story a little bit to a wider audience. Um, so Chris, if you can start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit of your story. Uh, sure. Um, it's always hard to talk about yourself, but as the number of birthdays have gone by and you're closer to the other end, it's probably (laughs) heartwarming to reflect that someone wants to know the journey at all. But uh, migrated from India in 1986, like most people, set my sights on the West at a young age, wanting to make a better name for myself and an opportunity. Things have changed back home now in 
probably if I lived in India now, I probably would have never left. But uh, back then, things were very difficult uh, in the small towns we grew up in. And so I married a girl who was born and born in America, but raised in India. So unlike others who came here to study, I was able to spare my parents that uh, expense and migrated uh, as a husband of a woman who was born in the U.S. but raised in India. So I came in on what is called a one-on-one priority, and I was able to work the day I landed, unlike other people. So I was very fortunate. So January, uh, I mean, March 1 of 1986, land in the United States and go to say work in sales, do that for the next five years. Circa 1990, January, I win a sales contest, and I'm sent to hear a man by the name of Zig Ziglar speak. Uh, I did not know what a Zig Ziglar was. Mr. Ziglar then went on to become my spiritual father and mentor. But after I left that seminar, much like your encounter with me, that three hours, there was a transformative moment when I realized that all my formal education, when I stacked it against that three hours, uh, that three hours actually plugged a lot more holes than my entire academic prowess did. So I set my sights on trying to find a way to work for him. It didn't happen till about a year and a half later. Uh, long story short, I ended up taking a job as a telemarketer with Mr. Ziegler in 1991, October. So uh, that was 32 years ago, this October. And um, took a pay cut of about $2,400 a month. I was a branch manager of a company and took a job pay cut to go work for him as a telemarketer with the desire that somehow if what he said was true and I believed in my heart that it was true, then when those lines collided and those paths uh, coalesced, that uh, destiny was going to be on, and I would be on the right side of gravity. So uh, within about three months, I got the job of traveling with him and then the blinders came off and I got to see firsthand a man's impact. And I rode with him in the front of the plane on private jets for the next 20 years all over the world, ended up writing a book with him. And slowly from a telemarketer in 1991, when I joined them till when I resigned, I was the vice president of global operations for Zig Ziglar Corporation. And even then they didn't let me resign. They asked me to stay on for another four years as an independent contractor saying they'd invested too much in me. But my heart was uh, then bent on trying to do something for other parts of the world. And so that was when the trajectory, we kind of went different paths, but I'm still considered the global ambassador for the Ziegler Group and uh, probably the de facto person, even his family will attest that no one has done more with his name and legacy than I did globally in terms of scholarships and buildings and all the other stuff. So, mm, That's great. So how did you first get introduced? What was the moment when you first got introduced personally with, with Zig? Uh, well, uh, Mr. Z, uh, I remember when he walked into the cubes uh, that we were, I was a telemarketer and he was the chairman of the company and the best-selling author. So uh, he walked by the cube and uh, he put his arm around me and uh, said, of all the people you could have chosen to work with, of all the organizations you could have chosen to have given yourself to, I sure am glad you chose me. I came to America with $9 in my pocket and a lot of aspirations, but I grew up in a small town in a pretty secluded Indian uh, joint family setup. Uh, so an elder wise wizard putting his arm around you was unheard of. Someone motivating you was so far from the norm. We grew up in a comparative society. Why can't you be like someone else's children? For someone telling little old poor little me sitting in a cube with a headset selling books and tapes that of all the places I could have given my skill, he was sure glad I chose him. 
for a moment I felt like a million bucks and then I'll be darned if he didn't say it in the next cube and the next cube and the next cube. He said it to everybody. The only difference was the other 19 that they didn't believe him and I did. So, mm. uh, <laughs> Yeah. So how how was it navigating? Because um, you you had just came from India and started kind of your journey in, in the workforce in America. And so how was your how was your journey navigating through just being? I hate to say this, but you know, kind of an outsider in. Sure, in the US. Uh, how was that? And uh, you know, you don't need to. Yeah, there's no. You're. Uh, I'm really glad people ask the poignant questions because today people dance around the issues. The issue yeah. was you are an outsider. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have an accent and you have a bearing that comes from a different place. And there is a, now a mood that is very different. I think if I came as an immigrant to this country now, I would not make it because now everything is let's lower the barometers and make the lowest common denominator ugly and look like what you left mm. instead of making it the highest common denominator of what you left. So there's something to aspire to. So for me, the West was uh, something that uh, was more of a, a dream that was now in my grasp and I was not going to let anybody get in my way. So when people said, excuse me, I can't quite get you. I don't know what you're saying. Can you repeat that, please? I didn't take it as a fact that I was speaking the Queen's English and I was now dealing with a bunch of Americans who were speaking American. My language and erudition and my vocabulary and sophistication was far ahead of them. It's just that in this place, I was not making sense because of the way I was communicating. And the irony was the first leadership and success principle I learned, don't try to be somewhere unless you're sure that you can be effective where you are without changing your expectations, which means I did not want to change who I was by the same token I had to adapt to where I was. So I went and opened a dictionary and found out words that uh, didn't begin with the letter V and W, which was tripping me up and uh, trying to change the phonetics of language and enunciation and pronunciation, joined Toastmasters, started a performance club in a prison in Mansfield, Texas, so I'd get chances to practice my own diction. And so, you know, you did all the unorthodox things to overcome the isms and schisms. So Cameron, my definition of success very quickly became, success is not who you are in relation to the people sitting next to you, Success is who you are in relation to where you're willing to stand, looking at the isms and schisms that are preventing you and hoping by sheer centripetal force you're sucked in. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went uh, to where the bully pulpit was. I went to where the unorthodoxy was. I chose all the things that were going to debilitate and sideline me, take it head on, realizing this. Failure has always been an event. It has never been a person. You can fail at something. You cannot fail as someone. Otherwise, mm. there wouldn't just be one of you on the planet. Mm. Yeah. So what what um what pushed you to continue to move forward and pursue for more and strive for higher, and and continue to, um I guess, push that glass ceiling that you had because um it it must have been very challenging during that time. Yeah, and the reason was for the first time I found the playing field level in the sense that I was going to be evaluated based on the skill set I came with, not the degree, the academics, or uh, any of the other things. So I grew up in a comparative shame culture, which means if you didn't do X, Y, and Z, you didn't even were not even allowed to run the race. Yeah. And here was my mentor, the man who had written at that point nine books, uh, seven of which had been on the New York Times bestseller list or whatever. 
and he had never gone to college. So by Indian standards, he would have been no one's mentor. And he was commanding 35, 40, 50 grand a speech at that time. And I was thinking to myself, this man is doing more good by liberating the thought process of people. And all he's saying is, how many self-imposed caps have put on your own ability when you write down your capability? Mm. And then I thought to myself, I said, wow, a lot of my self-imposed caps were I'm an immigrant. I'll always have an accent. I'll always be from a small town. I'll always... Uh, not be the guy who went to Harvard. I'll always be the guy not trained by IBM. Who cares? At yeah. the end of the day, you know, you have to look at, uh, it's it's always, you know, Mr. Ziegler used to have a saying, a big shot is just a little small shot who kept on shooting. <laughs> so, mm. <laughs> so I just, uh, I would go to the races every day with only one goal in mind, that the worst that can happen is I'd, I'd, I'd not make it. But that was that was what would have happened had I never tried. So no matter what I did, I realized that I never failed. I always broke even. So. Mm. Mm. That's that's really good. So I wanted to uh, tap into uh, your relationship with Zig Ziglar, and because you were in very close proximity with him, sure. and um, I wanted to tap into if you could share some of the great lessons that you've learned throughout being really you were mentored by by Zig and. Um, what what you learned throughout um, being in close proximity with him? Yeah, Mr. Ziegler was the most consistent man I'd ever met. What you saw is what you got. But I jokingly tell people I was only with him for 20 years, day in, day out. So <laughs> if the dictionary ever went pictorial, the word consistency would have to have his picture. Otherwise, don't buy that book. So the first lesson I learned was consistency. Second was a small poem he kind of quoted often from his mother. He says, be it a job, big or small, do it well or not at all. Your word is your bond. If your word's no good, you're no good. Through that, I began to realize that success on a baseball diamond is every hit's not go every at bat is not going to be a hit. Every hit's not going to be a home run, but every home run has to be an at bat and a hit, which means you have to keep on swinging. And uh, so consistency, be uh, making sure that your work was diligent. And then he would say something else. He says, "For most boys, that work would be okay, but you're my boy. I expect better." And so he had a principle that was very, very profound. He criticized the performance of the performance deserved criticism, but he always praised the performer so they could fight another day. Hmm. So those were some of the foundational lessons that I learned that said, you know what? If you join the smile, compliment, and handshake club, suit up to get up. And, uh, you know, America is a very forgiving nation. All it asks you to do is show up and throw up and <laughs> you're successful. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so how did you get into public speaking? Because you are an amazing speaker. It was the first time I heard you speak, and um, I, I was just floored hearing you speak <laughs> for the first time. Well, I appreciate the compliments. I was a debater in India, and I did all of the things that allowed me to at least have a command of the language. I had an early influence, an English teacher by the name of Mrs. Simon, who somehow said, hey, you know what? Within the confines of this country, your prowess of this language and your ability to remember and recite uh, will be overlooked because somehow you seem to be struggling in the maths and the sciences. But one day this 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 disability should reward you. I trust God for it. And uh, I've had the privilege of starting a scholarship in her name in her daughter's school because when you sift through the dust, that was the lady who who believed in me. And so I grew up debating in India because that was the only thing I was good at. But in India, even though I was winning the debates, people just thought that as, you know, it's almost an equivalent to, okay, yeah, in India you play chess, so no big deal, everybody, yeah. knows, right? So 
uh, when I came to the West and I saw that a man was making a living at it, I said, you know, maybe I'll take a crack at this. Now, I quickly realized that what I had was the rhetoric and the ability to argue. I did not have the diction and the ability to persuade. Mm. And the public speaking is the ability to persuade. So there's a difference between an orator, someone who just speaks extemporaneously. And I wanted to be an orator, but same thing with Mr. Ziegler's words. I didn't want to just crack the ceiling of public speaking. I wanted to be the person people came to learn the art of communication. And today in my communication classes, people pay north of $1,000 a day just to spend the day with me to learn the tricks of the trade. So for a guy who came from another country and sat with a dictionary and changed his vocabulary, I think it's turned out okay. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's that's amazing to hear some of your story and your journey, really, and navigating uh, really life in America and getting introduced to Zig Ziglar and learning from him. But, you know, uh, one thing I noticed is even uh, I saw myself doing this early on in my my experience in the workforce is I see oftentimes people really limit themselves based on their circumstances and they and circumstances could be their upbringing, their race. It could be something, something different, their religion. Um, there's a lot of different examples where people limit themselves and across all ages, I think people struggle with this. Um, so what encouragement do you have to say? Cause you're really a, an, an example of someone that's really, um, is didn't go in the, the traditional route of a, a typical Indian immigrant, right? Um, you you really went above and beyond what what uh, people would think. And even myself, I really haven't seen um, like an Indian on stage at, at doing public speaking engagements uh, talking about what you talk about today. So uh, what encouragement do you really have for, for those? I really do think that there are two things. One is other people, Eleanor Roosevelt said, other people can tell you what you can or cannot be, only you can fulfill it. Mm. And the important thing is we live in a culture where we have anywhere, it's not just India, whether it's, you know, I've now been to 75 countries on six continents. So people around the world have the same issue. And the issue is what will others think? Yeah. And especially within the confines of India, that is a predominant, you know, uh, I don't know if you speak Hindi at all, but Mm -hmm. uh, in Hindi, there's a saying, Lok kya kahenge, you know, what will people say? Yeah. And I married a girl from northern part of India. And when I'm in India, I joke. I said, for 40 years, I've been looking for these people. I haven't found them. They are out looking for their own people. Nobody cares. Just because you hold your breath, the universe doesn't suffocate. I quickly realized that you got this journey. We got this journey backwards. We have been raised to believe that success is a comparison and failure is personal. No, success is personal and failure is a comparison. <laughs> because you only have one journey. And uh, when you come to Checkpoint Charlie, the end, whether you decide to be someone who's cremated or someone who's buried, my friend Vicky Hitchcock says there are only two statements that define your life, no matter what you were born as and what qualifications you had when you died. The only two statements you can make are, I wish I had, or I'm glad I did. One is a regret. I wish I had. Coulda, woulda, shoulda, hesitation, hill. The other is, I'm glad I did. Now, here's the thing. What is the worst that can happen? And I've shared that earlier in this podcast, that if you try something you've never tried before and you're flat, flat on your face, you break even. And nobody ever told me that. Everybody only told me that, you know, if you fail at something, what will people say? And so not only are you afraid to try, once you try, you're afraid to try again. Mm -hmm. But yesterday ended with last night. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Mm 
if every high school dropout was broken in debt and every PhD a millionaire, the world would have been a very different place. But we know that's not true. Mm. Uh, so, you know, and I was able to encourage my dad, who was 75 and had grown up in that Indian system. You know, I made a statement. I said, when your obligations to others finish, your obligations to your dreams remain. And I convinced my father to go back and get his PhD, which he did at the age of 83. So. Mm. Yeah, that that's often very difficult to to get over that fear of what other people will think. Because uh, I've gone in that journey to a very unorthodox journey. Um, one, I work in the aviation industry, yeah. um, and started several of my own ventures, pursue leadership, um, training, um, doing a podcast, doing real estate, and um, that fear of failure. I still can't get over that because you know if if. I say something wrong on social media or something, my mind goes to, oh, what what are these people going to think about? What if I misspoke or said something? That that fear is really difficult to get over. Well, you're much younger than me, so I'll give you a piece of advice since you're in multiple areas and you're obviously a lot more successful than I was when I was your age in terms of what you've accomplished. The fact that you're hosting this and asking me to talk to you means you've already broken barriers. I still haven't. So take this to heart. If you never believe your positive press, you'll never have to defend your negative press. Take it in stride. When good things happen to you, just chalk it up as something that was deserving because, you know, Mr. Ziegler had a saying, you plan to win and prepare to win then and only then can you legitimately expect to win. Mm. And if you planned and you prepared, you will win. That doesn't mean you're not, not every day is going to be a win. But if you don't believe the good things people say about you, you don't have to defend the bad things when they do say about you. Here's the thing I have learned in my journey. I have never seen a single statue erected to a critic. So I'm not afraid of criticism. But the criticism I do welcome is constructive criticism, which John Maxwell calls the law of the inner circle. Yeah. So in my inner circle are people who, when they criticize me, I take it to heart, not because I'm afraid. I take it to heart to change my behavior because what they are saying is I'm criticizing you to eliminate the flaws that are preventing you from rising because they love me enough to point out the mistakes. Half the world is filled with negative critics who just want to point out flaws. Yeah. I don't care to hoots about them. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you, you mentioned some, something there too. It's, it's, you have to have a, a really positive inner circle around you, not only positive, but those that can hold you accountable. So how important was, was mentorship really in, in your life throughout your journey so far? Two, twofold. I mean, one thing is you, even though as, as great a mentor as Mr. Ziegler was, I never used him as my financial mentor. I never used him as my spiritual mentor. He was my spiritual father, but I had a spiritual mentor who was a theologian. So I just tell people, make sure you have mentors in all areas of your life and don't try to find a mentor just because of their celebrity and hope that one size fits all. Second, don't take advice from someone who doesn't follow it. So uh, don't take diet advice from a fat doctor <laughs> for starters. <laughs> you know, that's not going to fly. So the inner circle of positivity, the mentoring, one of the things I have is I had a group of men for many, many years when I was traveling and on Thursdays we would meet. And this was an accountability group. So that week we would talk about, you know, when did, uh, when did our eyes wander? When did we have weird thoughts? And all of this was important because we were right. We were raising each other's kids in the other's absence. I wanted my son to have positive role models. But here's the thing, Cameron, the principle goes back to this. We have failed miserably at the ability to allow ourselves to be loved so we don't understand what it is to love. Mm. For us, love becomes an 
an action. Love becomes a behavior. Love becomes a participation in society, a valentine or a, or a card. Love as an ethic is very hard to understand in this world. And in order to understand the true nature of that, that, that all-inclusive ability that you're not alone, you don't need to walk through this alone, uh, there are people who are out there who can guide you and uh, whose whose life may not be have any notoriety. But Anila and I, my bride and I, have always taught mentors who are older than us for our family problems. I did not want to talk about children problems with someone who had kids my age and dealing with the same problems. Now you have two people with two problems and no solution. So we always found people who were five years older than us. That made us boring, but made us effective. What we learned through the process was the easiest success in the world is your name, your legacy. It's not the flash. Uh, I'm very kind. I mean, all my friends drive expensive cars. You go to the parking lot in front of my building, my business partner, you know, all of them drive expensive cars. Mm -hmm. I've always driven a used car because most of the time it's spent at the airport. That's not being a good steward. But the same token, a reason we drive a used car and live in a house that's paid off is not because I can't afford anything more. I always wanted to have enough money spared that if something happened to our parents in India or something happened to my brother somewhere, I would not have to say the bills are too much, the debt is too much, I can't make this trip. Right from the very early days, 30 years ago, we always had enough money, even when we were broken in debt, to make a trip to India, no questions asked, because that's honor, that's obligation, that's responsibility, that's duty. So some of these things, when they when you practice out over a period of time, you become self-sufficient and you, you understand the joy between happiness and joy. Happiness is, depends on happenings, but joy is undiluted, it's unadulterated, it's pure. So it's not positive thinking just by itself. Positive mm. thinking won't do anything, but it will do everything better than negative thinking. <laughs> So. Mm. Uh, that's great um how did you build the confidence early on when because I, I bet there was a lot of fear especially early on when you started to be on the spotlight and um they were like who is this indian person talk yeah talk. i mean how, how you, did you build that confidence <laughs> these 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 events are nothing there was a 125 set of events i did over a 10-year period well, one of the events in Giorgio Dome, 35,000, I was put between Jimmy Carter and Rudy Giuliani. So uh, I spoke to arenas full of people for a period of 10 years and made my own name. Here's the principle I learned. I don't ever compete in any environment. I just complete my assignment. Mm. I do not walk in saying that, okay, so-and-so spoke before me. I always walk into every arena believing I belong. I am not there because of that person's ability to throw a touchdown or my ability not to. I'm there because of my ability to hold my own for 40 minutes. Nobody who is doing what they do in a public arena would dare put my picture up there or my if they didn't believe in me before I believed in myself. Mm. So you are afraid, but I tell people, one thing my confidence has taught me is that I have butterflies in my stomach, not because I'm nervous, but it's a sign of respect but I've learned how to make them fly in formation. That's a sign of excellence. <laughs> mm. Mm. That That's, that's good. Um, you know, one, one of the things is uh, I know you're, you're a man of faith. Um, you, you talk about faith in, in your book, um, yeah. Twilight. And so how, where are the roots of faith for you? 
And how was that a part of your, how, I guess, how was that a part of your journey so far in uh, navigating through life? Very integral and uh, good astute observation. I was raised in an Orthodox Hindu home. My father is still uh, lives and subscribes to that worldview. My mom who passed away, passed away believing in, in the pantheistic worldview. I married a girl who was a Christian, but that didn't make me a Christian any more than buying a car makes you Henry Ford. So I uh, came to the United States and for seven years, we were unequally yoked. She went to church and this was still when we practiced what was called Blue Sundays, when you couldn't allow anything to be sold in the marketplace before noon. So I would be in the house with nothing to do till noon. And then I started going to church with her. Still, nothing took. When Mr. Ziegler came into my life, I saw that there was an X factor about him that seemed to complete the others. Years later, in studying C.S. Lewis, I found out about this. See, the very word for love is four words in the Greek language. One is storge, which is application or the basic love. The other is phileo, which is relational or brotherly love. The third is eros or physical love. But agape, which is unconditional love, can only be got if you understand the first three. But agape has to exist for the other three to manifest because that unconditional love first comes from someone who first loved us. Mm -hmm. When I began to realize that there is a sequence, I started studying. So I'm not a believer because of some evangelical halo moment where I was in the depth of sin and confessed uh, and asked for a savior. I actually studied all the worldviews. I studied Islam. I studied Hinduism. I studied Buddhism. And I began to do it through the apologetic lens of the law of non-contradiction. Everything cannot be right. Uh, if God is God, he cannot ask me for anything. So who is this God and why are different people praying to him in different ways? A few things that led me down the Christian path that actually gave me solace was logically consistent, was all the worldviews God asks you to do something to get to him. You either pray to the East, you actually pray a number of times, or you make a pilgrimage, or you shave your head, or whatever it is, things I'd done as a child. You give offerings to the temple. All of these things, God wants me to do something to please him, but only one God said, you're not good enough to get to me on your own, yet you're not bad enough that I will leave you on your own. I will come off the mountain. It's huge difference. So suddenly one Christianity started separating itself from the others, and it was the only one being forced to defend itself. And I said, there must be something here why everybody is angry about, nobody has to defend themselves. So you can go to a yogi and you can do yoga and he doesn't have to defend himself or prove anything. But if a Christian stands up and says, Jesus is the only way, he has to defend it. So I said, you know, it's outliving its pallbearers. It's the most scrutinized. The evidence is there overwhelmingly, archeologically, scientifically, theologically. I studied it all. And then I came to this conclusion that Christianity was the only worldview where in its holy writ, the Holy Bible, there is a conversation between God and a hurting man. No other worldview offers solace where God himself says, I stand in the gap. And that's when I realized my life is not a life of worry because I have or I don't have. My life is a life of worry because I'm sinful by nature. Mm -hmm. And in order for my sin to have any standing in this world, I need a savior outside of myself. And that's why it became a very integral part of myself. And I now stand tall in any public arena. And here's the beauty of it. I've trained everybody from AT&T to Walmart. And you just go on my YouTube channel, you know I'm a Christian. People always say, how do you get away with it? 
I said, I've straddled the line of secular and sacred for 35 years, irritating neither, but impacting both, because I practiced the Great Commission, which is telling them who sent me, and the Great Commandment, which is loving them because he sent me. Mm. <laughs> that's great. Uh, yeah, that that's really unique. And I didn't really know how you came to faith, but that that's a really interesting story. Um, so as as we come to a close, you know, um, this this podcast is is called Navigation and Discovery. So I wrote a book about how I navigated through my early years, college and early years in the workforce. And, you know, of course, navigating and discovering through the journey of life does not come easy. And I know you know that as well. Um, many struggle with the question, you know, are they going in the right direction? Are or what is my purpose and calling on this this planet Earth? Um, what advice or encouragement do you have for those really struggling with this question? Uh, it's a good question and uh, very simply to answer in the way I would try to not to be too flippant is mm -hmm. when passion is born, you get a glimpse of your potential, not the other way around. You can't wait for all your ducks to line up to do anything because you'll be standing on the sideline with a bunch of ducks. You need to get your nose bloodied and you need to believe that there is a purpose for you. Howard Hendricks from Dallas Seminary put it this way, and I love it, it's the most brilliant and astute observation. He says, your careers are what you're paid for, but your purpose is what you're made for. So we're designed to be 24 hour champions. For eight to 10 hours of the day, we need to invest in the skill that allows us to make a living. But for the balance of the time, we need to invest in the will that allows us to shape a life. When skill and will come together for the very first time on God's green earth, you will have unleashed that 24 hour champion, enjoying both the prosperity that comes with work and the diligence that comes with hard work, but also the love and the loyalty that comes with the family component of it. I really believe you can have it all. I don't think people need to sacrifice one in, in favor of the other. So for purpose, per, for that, that would be my advice on that. The other thing is, how do I know? Uh, again, being a man of faith, I will tell you this. When you put your head on the pillow at night, and if it is truly ordained for you, you will sleep peacefully. If it is not, you will stay awake asking whatever you believe that ordains you to change its mind. Mm. <laughs> so. mm. That's great. That's great. Um, I do have some fun questions uh, <laughs> for our listeners to get to know you a bit more. Um, if dead or alive, uh, who would you have lunch with? Uh, of course, uh, <laughs> the answer is both. Jesus would be the one I would want to have lunch with, obviously, because he's he mm -hmm. shaped every aspect of my life. Uh, but if I had to, in hindsight, go back and get a little bit emotional, I wish Mr. Z was alive now to see this part of the journey, that he never got to see the books that are written in his name, the scholarships and all that. So, mm -hmm. um, so the two people I would like to have lunch with uh, would be my mother-in-law and Mr. Ziegler at the same table. Both of them who were radically involved in my transformation. Um, I was very, very unique relationship with my mother-in-law. She was a saint. And uh, the irony of irony is that she was born on July 4th. Mr. Ziegler was born again on July 4th. Mm. So um, I, I dedicated my book from abstracts to absolute searching for the true identity of God with those two. The other people, if you had to look at through history, and I don't want to make the list too long and laborious, I have a bunch of authors in there who have really shaped my thinking. Malcolm Muggeridge, G.K. Chesterton, F.W. Borum, uh, you know, 
uh, F.B. Meyer, Billy Sunday. These are the guys I would like to sit around the table because they were game changers in their time with very little. Mm. So, all right. Awesome. Um, what is it that you uh, are reading today? Uh, right now, in fact, I just started a new book today. It's called The Rise of Totalitarianism by Hannah Arendt. Mm. Hannah Arendt, if you don't know, was the girl who captured a lot of the Nuremberg trials post-World War II in Ge after Germany and all that. And she's the one who coined the phrase banality of evil when she talked about evil becoming banal, something that is we expect to happen and we don't react. Mm. So I'm reading her book, The Rise of Totalitarianism, where she's comparing the Nazis and the Russians right now. So that's what I'm reading right now. <laughs> okay. Um, what is your favorite snack? My favorite snack is popcorn. Okay. <laughs> and um, last question is, what would be the next thing that you would like to do uh, that's on your bucket list? Uh, the one, the off the bucket list items that are left is Antarctica is the one thing that I'm seriously uh, trying to figure out a way to get there because I, when I set the goal that I wanted to speak, I wanted to speak in 50 countries on five continents. I've done 75 countries on six continents, wow. but the stupid Antarctica was not a continent when I set the goal. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's uh, that's the bucket list item. And then I want to do the Great Wall. I've done the pyramids. I've done some of the other wonders. So snorkel the Great Barrier Reef and done all that. So, Oh, wow. This is, this is really great. Um, last words of encouragement to our listeners. <laughs> The last word of encouragement I would give is a quote that's attributed to me. And I've, I've labored hard because I'm asked this question a lot on podcasts, but maybe this will sum up our entire discussion. And if they went online and typed in this version, they'll find this quote, but it goes like this. Plan with attitude, prepare with aptitude, participate with servitude, receive with gratitude, and that should separate you from the multitudes. Hmm. Wow. Well, Krish, uh, it was truly an honor um, really sitting here, getting to know you a bit more. And uh, I've learned so much just within this last 40 minutes talking to you. And uh, it it re you really spoke to me. I don't know about our listeners, but this was great for me. And I really needed the uh, this encouragement today. And um, thank you. Thank you for saying yes and being on the podcast. My, my joy, my joy. Yeah. yeah. Anytime you need it, uh, this is, I mean, I can't take any of this with me, so. If it, if it can be yeah. left with someone capable like you, it would be my honor. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for pouring into not only me, but our, but our listeners and um, appreciate it. No problem. God bless. God bless. Well, I really don't know how to end this episode because there was so much gold in this interview with Krish. Uh, I'm so thankful for the opportunity that he gave me to uh, do this podcast interview with him. I really hope that this provided some encouragement to you wherever you're at in your journey of life. I know it's the start of a new year. I don't know where you're at at where you are at in these few days of the new year, but I hope that something that Chris said really moved you and that you were able to get that encouragement that you need. Uh, I know for me, it was an awesome encouragement. Uh, we recorded this in October of 2023, and uh, it was such an interesting time of the year for me, and per he provided so much encouragement to my life, and I really hope that this provided encouragement to you. And that's what this podcast is all about, is to bring people onto the podcast, share their stories, 
and learn from different perspectives, different people from different backgrounds. And I really hope that that this this podcast is adding value to you wherever you're at, whether you're listening to the car, whether you're listening during a workout, whether you're watching on YouTube. I really hope that this podcast continues to add value to you wherever you're at. And if you want to connect with me and and follow on social media, uh, feel free to do that. All the links are in the podcast description on whichever platform you're listening on. And also, if you want to uh, send me an email, uh, connect with me in any way, uh, you can go ahead and send me an email at singcameron at outlook.com. And happy to connect with you. If you just want to have a chat, I'm willing to give you know at least 30 minutes of, of my time to you. Uh, if you want some encouragement, ask some questions. Uh, feel free to send me ideas or guests that you would like to see on the podcast this year. I know I had a lot of awesome guests over the last year, and I'm gonna I have a lot of more variety to come to you in the new year. And also, if you haven't purchased my new book, Navigation and Discovery: A Path of Navigating and Discovering Through Your Journey of Faith, this is a little bit of my story. Uh, of how I navigated through high school, my college years, how I navigated in the work environment uh, my, with my early years in the workforce, in the aviation industry. And this is really providing encouragement to uh, those that are just entering the workforce or in high school or in college or trying to figure out what is it that I'm called to do? What is my purpose? And I made so many mistakes and this book is to share uh, my journey and in hopes that you don't make the same mistakes that I did. And uh, you can get that book at CameronSing.com on my website. And uh, the link is in the podcast description as well. Um, CameronSing.com. You can purchase the book in any format and your support would be greatly appreciated. And if this book is not for you, feel free to gift this message. Maybe there's someone on your heart that you feel needs to hear this message. And Thank you so much for those that have supported me in 2023 and look forward to your continued support of the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe uh, if this is your first time listening so that you receive a notification when the next episode goes live. And also feel free to give a review on whichever platform you're listening on. Thank you again for your support. And I wish you nothing but the best in the new year, 2024. And If you haven't gotten the opportunity to hear back on my review of 2023 and I provide some fresh perspectives for the new year and give uh, some insights on some of the new coming in 2024. So take care and I'll catch you on another high value episode and guest coming to you next week. Thank you so much and I'll catch you on the next episode.